in two weeks. Uh, so not uh, New Year's Day, but the following Sunday, they'll start back up again. Also, um, this uh, Christmas pin was found in the parking lot. I'm guessing that has some value to one of you ladies. And if, you, if that is yours, uh, see me afterwards and we'll make sure you get that back. Uh, last thing, I got some good news from Eric, our finance guy, this morning. Uh, some of you have, may have noticed in the bulletin that, that mountain of red ink that we have been bleeding for the last uh, several weeks. And uh, I'm informed today that we are about that close to being in the black as of today. So uh, we have had tremendous, tremendous generosity over the last month, and uh, especially in this last week, um, lots and lots of uh, Christmas gifts have come in to the church, and, uh, and so we have a lot to celebrate on that end of things as well. Um, so praise God for that, and, uh, and thank you to those of you who have been so generous, uh, because it really has uh, made a difference in our ability to continue to do ministry going forward. And it's exciting to see uh, God's people respond uh, to, uh, to the ministry plan and, and purpose that we have here as a church, you know. Church doesn't, uh, uh, the Lord does not need our money, but he is honored when we give to him. Amen. You know, he's not in debt to any of us. Uh, we're in debt to him, but uh, he is certainly honored as we choose to use our resources to, uh, to further his kingdom. So that's exciting to me to see that happen and uh, encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. Well, with all that in mind, I want to take a minute before we jump into God's word here and pray together. So if you would bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Father, we have so much for which to praise you this morning, uh, not just for the financial uh, blessings you have bestowed on the church here in the last few weeks, uh, but also, Father, for the way that you have uh, brought us uh, your grace every single day. Every breath that we take, every opportunity that we have in this life, every gift that we have, every talent that we utilize, Father, all these things come from you. And supreme among your gifts, obviously, is what we celebrate today, the coming of Messiah. That God became a man and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ. We thank you for his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection and his sending of the Holy Spirit to us that we might follow him and be united to him in his body. And Father, we praise you this morning as we gather together. We think of those who are celebrating Christmas this year, missing some loved ones. Uh, there's an empty spot around their table. Uh, Father, we pray that you would encourage them and heal the brokenhearted and remind them that one day all of the things of this life will come to an end and be swallowed up in victory and the glory of your presence where we will enjoy you forever and ever. And Father, we, uh, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, 
2016 is almost at an end. And I don't know if your 2016 has been good or bad, but whichever way it has been, um, we, uh, we all need the same thing at the end of the year. And this mic seems really hot to me. Is it warm to you all? Okay, can we back that off a little? All right. Um, we all need the same thing at the end of every year. We all need a renewed focus on Christ and renewed hope for the days to come. And especially we need the hope that um, maybe now, maybe between now and next Christmas, even as we celebrate the first advent of Christ, that the second advent of Christ would happen between now and next Christmas. Amen? Because Christ is coming again, uh, and we look forward to the, to the second coming of Christ. Uh, the Messiah that we celebrate is not just a baby in a manger. He is the crucified and risen Messiah. He is the Lord of all creation who is coming back. Amen? And so as we look forward to 2017, uh, I want to celebrate Messiah's first coming uh, with the hope that we uh, also look forward to his second coming. So if you've got your Bible here with you this morning, I'd like to turn over to Matthew chapter 2 and look at it with you, um, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, these are some familiar verses. In fact, I bet they show up in every single church Christmas pageant that has ever been done in the history of the world. Uh, you've got to have these verses, because if you don't, you can't get the wise men and the star in there, and you've got to have that because there's not enough roles for all the kids. You can't make everybody a shepherd. You've got to have some wise men, right? And you've got to have a star because, hey, that's a cool effect. And uh, you've got to have this stuff. Now, now, remember, they're not showing up at the stable. They're not showing up at the cave or in the barn where, where Jesus was born. They're showing up after Jesus is a child. 
Uh, and I love this part of the story. I, I loved it last week. I don't know how many of you were here, but last week when the star appeared, as if by magic, across the sky, right over the, 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 uh, the birth of Jesus uh, at our little Christmas pageant right here on uh, last Sunday night. It was cool. And, um, and the wise men came and they bowed to worship the child. And, and I want to be sure, though, that just because these verses are familiar, that we don't miss the reasons that Matthew includes them in the story. He's not just telling this story uh, simply because he wants to, hey, this is a neat detail. And by the way, there were some wise men, and isn't that cool? Um, no, he's telling us for a reason. And the reason he is telling us is that he is wanting us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, 2, which predicts the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, who will be born in David's little town of Bethlehem. Now, we didn't sing that song this morning, but I bet you all know it, a little town of Bethlehem. And it's a little town. And so it's not the kind of place that you would normally predict that a great king and ruler would come from, even though he's descended from David. And that's where David was from. But the idea is that just like David was a shepherd boy who became king, Micah is emphasizing that the Messiah will function like David, that he will be a king, but he will also be a shepherd, not of sheep, but of the people of Israel. And just like a shepherd leads and protects his sheep, at this time, Israel is just a province of the Roman Empire. It hasn't been an independent nation with its own king since the days of Jeremiah. 500 and, oh, it's almost 650 years by this point uh, since, since uh, Israel has been an independent nation. The nation fell in 586 B.C. This is... Uh, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later. And this boy, born in Bethlehem, is, according to Matthew, the shepherd king whom God promised through the prophets. And he's wanting to make sure we understand that. And second, he un wants to under underline for us the fact that people recognized Jesus as the prophesied Messiah well before he began his earthly ministry. In other words, Jesus wasn't just recognized as Messiah once he began to go out and to preach and to do miracles. He was recognized from childhood, from the time he was little, from the time before he could talk and walk as the Messiah. In fact, wise men from the east, quite possibly Persians, that's probably who, the, the, who these people are. They're probably Persians or Medes who were influenced by Daniel's prophecies. Remember, uh, in the exile, the people of Judah were taken off to Babylon. And then Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. And one of the people who was there, who had survived the exile to Babylon and who was there still in the reign of the Medes and the Persians was a little guy who went to visit some lions one afternoon whose name was Daniel. Do you remember him? And Daniel wrote about the coming of Messiah. And so these guys who studied the stars and watched the movement of the stars and, and understood uh, how God was, uh, was, had set up the stars to work saw a particular celestial formation 
Uh, if you want a good explanation of this, uh, watch the movie, The Star of Bethlehem. We've got it in the church library. It's great. Okay, explains all, all this detail of what they saw and how it worked. And these guys were influenced by Daniel's prophecies, very probably, and they, these Gentile people saw Jesus for who he was. And it's important because it underlines the fact that Jesus' messianic identity was not something that was made up later and then overlaid on top of Jesus' life. This wasn't like we looked back on Jesus' life. That's the story that sometimes gets told if you watch you know, PBS specials or whatever on Jesus. They'll tell you that somehow that Matthew and, and Luke and the other gospel writers you know, looked at Jesus' life and then they kind of laid his messianic identity on top of it. But that's not what Matthew says. What Matthew says is from the very earliest days, Jesus was understood to be the Messiah, as a result of which they interpreted the Scripture the way they did. So it's important that we understand what Matthew is saying here. He's saying, look, from the very earliest days, from the time Jesus was a child, before the teaching ministry, before the death, before the resurrection, before any of that happened, he's recognized even by people from a long way off as being the Messiah. And third, he is telling us that Jesus' kingship is a threat to earthly rulers. When the Magi show up in Israel, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. Because if you're looking for a, a ruler in Israel to this day, that's where you go. Why? Because Jerusalem is the capital of the country. And that's where the kings would reign. And so they show up looking for a Jewish king born in the city, born to be the king. They go to Jerusalem. And do they find the prophesied child king there? No, they don't. Because Israel had a king already. Only they did not have a Jewish guy ruling. They had an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob, whose name was Herod. And he is sitting on a throne there in Jerusalem. He's a, he's a Roman puppet king, if you will. He got his job from the Romans. They declared him to be king. He calls himself Herod the Great because of all of the stuff that he did. Um, uh, you can decide for yourself whether he was actually a great person or not, but he did build a lot of stuff. And these guys show up, and they're looking for the prophesied child king, and their arrival throws the whole city into an uproar. Now, please understand, I, I don't want to burst any bubbles, and if you have a nativity set, I'm sorry, okay? But there weren't just three guys that show up. There were three gifts that were given. But it's not just three random guys show up in town and then everybody notices. These men would have been among the upper level officials of the court that they were in. And so they went kind of like, uh, you know, when the president travels, how they have like the 60 car armored motorcade, okay? They didn't have, you know, armored limousines back then or armored SUVs, but they did have armed guards that these guys would have traveled with. 
And so these, these guys would have been traveling with like, you know, a detachment of rangers would have gone with these guys wherever they went, however many there were. And the Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. So when they arrive, I mean, imagine, imagine if you had, uh, let's say, you know, the 101st Airborne show up in downtown Peoria, right? People would notice, right? As these guys come riding in in jeeps and tanks and all the rest of this, right? They come in full battle regalia to, to protect these guys who are considered a valuable asset of their kingdom. And so everybody notices when these guys show up. And the question they ask of Herod is, so where is he who's born king of the Jews? And he's like, uh, excuse me, wait a minute, hold on. There is a king of the Jews, and I'm the guy. And they're like, no, 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 this is a new one. <laughs> he's an actually a Jewish king. Not the Edomite king. He's a Jewish king, and he's just been born. And he's the Messiah, and we've come to look for him. And, and, and if you can imagine what this is like, how many of you like Westerns? I love Westerns, okay? One of my favorites is the movie Silverado. You should see it, all right? But, but basically, the, the, there's a scene in every Western movie, especially if they've got the, the classic Westerns, where the guy with the badge shows up, right? Finally, they're bringing law to this town, right? And the guy with the badge shows up, and he gets into town, and the first thing he does is walk down to the saloon where the bad guys hang out. And what's he tell them? This town ain't big enough for the both of us, right? And he'll tell him, look, you got until noon tomorrow to clear out because I'm the new sheriff in town, right? And then there's the big showdown. It's great, okay? Classic entertainment, right? Um, now, this is something like what Jesus' birth represents. He, the, the Magi's arrival at Herod's court is informing him, hey, there is a new sheriff in town, and it ain't you. And God intends to keep all of his promises and to bring about the kingdom that he establishes with the king that he promised and your time is limited. You're on borrowed time from now on, Herod. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus' coming represents a threat to every earthly kingdom, including the one that reigns in Israel at this time, that of Herod. And so, just like in the old westerns, you know, does the bad guy ever just leave? Oh, well, I didn't realize the sheriff came. Okay, well... Now I guess I need to hightail it out of here. No, they don't do that, right? What do they do? They strap on their gun and they go meet the sheriff. They're going to go throw down, right? And, and so Herod decides, well, if there's a new king in town, well, I'm going to take a shot at him. And so when the, when the wise men leave, and then they don't come back, and Herod's like sitting there in his palace going, you know, Bethlehem's only like seven miles from here. They should have been back by now. You know, did anybody, did anybody see those wise men leave? Yeah, they left like three days ago. Oh, man. So Herod is upset. And you get a, you get a little bit of his story here, a little intervening story about Jesus coming out of Egypt, verses 13 to 15. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, once the wise men leave, the child is in danger, and God sends an angel to Joseph again, and he warns him in a dream about what will happen once Herod finds out about Jesus. So Joseph and Mary and the child flee to Egypt beyond Herod's reach, and it turns out that the gifts of the Magi are enormously practical and come at just the right time because they all of a sudden have all of the financial resources they will need to live on the run for a while. And the thing Matthew is emphasizing here is that Jesus as Messiah is not just the shepherd king like David. He is also the one who has reenacted in his own life the story of the Exodus. He's quoting Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. The idea being that when the... Remember there was a guy named Joseph who went down to Egypt and there raised up a nation. And when the nation was ready, it went back to the land. Right? And Jesus is the son of a guy named Joseph who went down to Egypt to grow up a little bit so that when he was ready, they could go back to the land. And, and what Matthew is doing is noting the parallel that just as Jesus is the shepherd king like David, he's also reliving in his own life the story of Israel's own history that he spent a while in Egypt and then came back. And so in this way, Jesus is fulfilling in his own life everything that Israel was supposed to be. They're supposed to have a king like David. They're supposed to have come out of exile in Egypt and been God's people when they came back. And that's what Jesus is, is saying. But in addition, I mean, what Matthew is saying here about Jesus, and in the same way, he also fulfills Israel's history in the exile. Remember, at the beginning of their story as a nation, they came out of slavery in Egypt. And at the end of their story as an actual functioning nation, they went into exile. And Jesus, in his own life, experiences something like the exile. So look at verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Ramah was a city in the territory that belonged to Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was one of the sons, one of two sons, Joseph and then the second son, Benjamin, who were born to Jacob's wife, Rachel, the one that he loved. 
the woman he actually wanted to be married to to start with, if you remember the story in Genesis, right? And she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and Benjamin is one of the tribes that is left after the northern half of Israel goes into captivity in 722 B.C. uh, under the Assyrians. Judah and Benjamin is who's left in the land. And so Jeremiah predicts the coming of the Babylonian army, and he says, when they come, there will be a voice heard in Ramah, in the city city that belongs to Benjamin. And it will be the voice of the mothers in Israel, the descendants of Rachel, weeping and mourning for their children because they're going to be slaughtered by the Babylonian army. And that's precisely what they did, by the way. These invading Gentiles, as Israel went into exile, and very few escaped. And and Matthew links that event to the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem to show us that Jesus' life once again reflects, as it is lived, Israel's own history. And so he, in a sense, is the ideal Israelite who, in his own life, encapsulates all of God's promises and all of the great and terrible history of the nation. That Jesus is one of the, he is part of the remnant that escapes from the Babylonians. He is part of the remnant that escapes from the slaughter by these invading, conquering Gentile rulers. Just as he escaped from Herod, so a very few escaped from the Babylonians. And there's one more link that Matthew highlights for us. Uh, again, here at the end of, of chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, that he is the righteous branch. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, eventually, uh, actually just a few years after Jesus was born, Herod died. And his kingdom was divided among his surviving sons. I say surviving sons because Herod killed several of them. He had four that lived to adulthood, and one of them was a guy named Archelaus. And... Uh, Archelaus reigned over the portion of ancient Israel that included Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And so obviously they couldn't go back there because if dad wanted him dead, maybe the son wants him dead too because he's reigning in place of his father in this same area. And so Joseph is told by an angel once again, you know, at some point, if I were Joseph, I would start, start wondering about what I'm going to dream next when I go to sleep, right? Because this is the third visit from an angel in the last couple years of his life. And so 
uh, he says, look, it's not safe for you to go, I want you to go back to Israel, but it's not safe to go back to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem. And so instead, they go to Nazareth in Galilee. And Nazareth is a small little town in northern Israel at this time. It is uh, in a region of the country that formerly belonged to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And um, it was not regarded as the spiritual center of the country. In fact, it was regarded as whatever the opposite of that is. It was regarded as a Gentile area, as a place um, that Gentile culture predominated where, where authentic Jews didn't go. It was condescended on and despised by the people of Judea who saw themselves as authentic Jews and the truly spiritual. But Matthew sees a link between the name of the place uh, where Jesus grew, grew up, Nazareth, and an ancient prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11, which reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah chapter 11 is this beautiful prophecy about the coming of Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God that will, that will come as this Messiah comes. And this shoot comes from the stump of Jesse because... Why, why, do you, why is it just a stump? Well, because the tree has been cut down. Stump is all that's left. There is no longer a Davidic dynasty reigning over the people of Israel. Amen? I mean, Joseph is, uh, you know, he's got the lineage of the king, but what's, what's his job? The carpenter. Okay? It's a long way from royalty to where Joseph is. And so it's just a stump. The tree has been cut down. But he says there's going to be a shoot that's going to come out of that stump. And a branch that will grow up after the tree has been cut down. And when the tree seems to be dead, a shoot is going to come out, demonstrating that the tree is still really alive. And there's going to be a descendant of David who's going to reign. And his reign is going to be glorious. And now the name for branch in Hebrew is the word nezer. And you don't need to know that, except it's also the same word that begins the name of the town where Jesus grows up. Nezer. And Matthew links the two, and he says, just as Isaiah predicted a righteous branch, would come up from the stump of David's house. Jesus is the branch that grew up. He's from Branch Town. And you need to recognize him for who he is as the righteous branch. Isaiah prophesied over 800 years prior to Jesus. And he says, Look at all these things. The whole point of all that he's saying, he says, Look, Jesus is the shepherd king. That, that was predicted and promised to us in Micah. He's the one who is the fulfillment in a greater way as the ideal Israelite of the Exodus, just like Hosea predicted. He's the one who is uh, the fulfillment of the exile, just as Jeremiah predicted. And he's also the righteous branch that Isaiah predicted. 
all of these things that the prophets wrote about, all of them point to Jesus, is Matthew's point. And Jesus is the person who the prophets were looking for. And he's recognized as such by people even from his childhood. They understood this. And so Matthew's point is that we need to understand that. If the Magi who lived hundreds of miles away saw the star and knew what it meant and rode for Jerusalem to look for the shepherd king that Micah had promised. He's saying, look, don't you miss it either. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Remember, how does Israel's history begin? With Exodus. How does it end? In exile. In between, you've got a shepherd king, but also a promise of a greater shepherd king and a greater kingdom yet to come. He's saying Jesus is the one who is to bring all of that. And that Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment, therefore, of the entire Old Testament. And he's just giving you four little snippets so that you understand that Jesus is the one that we're looking for. He's the one that you've been waiting all of these generations, all of this time. Remember, all of a big chunk of, of, uh, of Matthew chapter 1 is Matthew's begats, right? And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and, so and, so and, and had, you know, his son was this, and he begat so-and-so, and it's 42 generations of genealogy, which if you ever need a, a good way to get through all that, uh, listen to Andrew Peterson. He sings it. It's great, okay? Uh, you can sing the whole song of Matthew's begats, right? And you can get the whole thing condensed down. But the point of all of that is this, is that for hundreds and thousands of years, we've been anticipating this person the prophets have been pointing to, and Jesus is saying, they can stop pointing, we found him. Jesus is the shepherd king who fulfills the exile and the exodus and is going to bring the kingdom that, that Isaiah promised. Jesus, whereas the nation of Israel fell down from one period of their history to another. I mean, you can look at Israel's history and it is the record of failure. Amen? When they came out of, of Egypt, you remember what happened? They got to the Red Sea and they all stood around and they looked around at Moses and they said, so you brought us out here to die, huh? Seriously, that's what they said. And, and Moses said, stand back and see God's deliverance. And they stand back and they see God's deliverance. They walk through on dry ground and all of the Egyptian army, the mightiest empire in the history of the world up to that time, is all wiped out in the power of God. And then they cross over as soon as, I mean, as soon as they have dried off. As soon as they have got the dirt off their feet from walking through the Red Sea, they go, you know, we don't have anything to eat. And we don't have anything to drink. And, and God provides. He provides manna from heaven, literally bread from heaven that falls every morning. And enough on the last day of the week that they can collect twice as much so they have something to eat on the Sabbath so they don't even have to work on the Sabbath day. 
He provides quail by the hundreds, which if you've never had deep fried quail, I'm telling you, it's worth it. All right. And it is magnificent, right? God provides not just food, but good food, gourmet food. And they catch these quail by the hundreds. I mean, they limit out every day as the quail come in. I'm kind of jealous, you know, I'm like, you know, God, you could do that again. That would be cool. Right? Restore the quail population. I'll get a bird dog. It'll be great. Right? Um, but God does this. He feeds them. He, they walk through the desert. And the whole time, their shoes and their clothes don't even wear out. And God is with them in a pillar of fire at night. So they have a night light in the desert and heat because it gets cold when the sun goes down in the desert. And he's with them as a pillar of cloud in the daytime, so they've got shade. Can you imagine? You're walking around in the hot desert, and it's nasty. It's 120 degrees, and you've got a giant cloud that covers all over you. So you've got shade. You're walking around in air conditioning in the desert. Imagine. And the entire time that God is doing this, the entire time that God is doing this, read the book of Numbers, it'll tell you, and read the book of Exodus, it'll tell you about rebellion after rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. While he is there, they are having a bacchanalia down at the bottom of the mountain and worshiping a golden calf. And then after that happens, and then it's another rebellion, and then there's another one, and another one, and another one, until the entire generation that came out in the Exodus died because they were unfaithful, except for Caleb and Joshua. And they don't even get to go into the land. It was an 11-day trip that takes 40 years because God leads them around in circles in the desert until the last of that generation is dead. And then they go into the land, and they're supposed to take the entire land, and they don't, because they refuse to trust God at several points. And then they've got all these Canaanite people who quickly lead the nation astray, and they go into the judges, and that's one colossal mess from beginning to end. You read the book of Judges, the theme of the book is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did whatever was right in his own eyes. And it's a mess. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And then finally, they get a king. They ask for a king, and God gives them a king whose name literally means you ask for it. Seriously, ask of the Lord. That's that's Saul's name, okay? And they get a king. They ask for a king like all the other nations, and they get a king just like all the other nations. And he is just as wicked and worthless as all of the other kings of all the other nations have. And then when they're sick to death of it, when they've got their gut full of Saul, God says, I'm going to give you a king after my heart. And he gives him David. And David is a great king, but he's a lousy father and he's a ratty husband. (laughs) Okay, he is. He's a lousy father. He's a ratty husband. He's unfaithful to his wife. He, uh, in fact claims another man's wife and has him killed so he can make it legit. Well, you know, it's, I, it, would be, it would be, you know, bad if I took another man's wife while they were still married, so I'm going to have him killed so I can have her all to myself. 
Well, that's great, David. Yeah, that worked out nice. And then, and then the entire kingdom is consumed by civil war and bloodshed for probably the last 20 years of David's life. And then his son Solomon becomes king, and Solomon is great for about the first few years of his life until he accumulates for himself what he was not supposed to accumulate for himself, according to Deuteronomy, great quantities of gold and silver and great numbers of wives. In fact, he had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends and a whole bunch of chariot horses and a big army, which he was not supposed to have because he was supposed to rely on God to deliver and not on the army. And so when he, when he dies, the kingdom splits in two. And what was supposed to be one, king, one kingdom under one king, the descendant of David, the descendant of David, Rehoboam, gets just a little rump of a nation to rule, and ten tribes go off to the north. And those ten tribes decide, well, we can't have our people going down to Jerusalem to worship, so we've got to do something else. And they set up some golden calf idols at Samaria and Dan. People have gods to worship. And because of their idolatry, they go into exile under the Assyrians. And then a couple hundred years later, the people go into exile. And then they're ruled by the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and it's a mess from beginning to end. And Jesus comes, and he is, he is one who experiences a better exodus, and who is the remnant saved from the exile, and the king who is better than David, who is bringing the kingdom better than David was able to bring. These things have already been fulfilled, Matthew tells us, and he is driving a stake for us, fixing our trust in God for a future fulfillment of what has not yet come. Because the kingdom that Jesus is is going to bring has not yet come. Amen? Not there yet. He's saying, Matthew is saying by quoting Isaiah chapter 11 that the king is here, the kingdom not yet. And he is reminding us of all these promises fulfilled in the past so that we will trust God with the future. Saying, look, if God kept his word in all of these ways in the past, then we should trust him for the future. You know, I don't know what 2016 was like for you. I don't know who you voted for in this last election. Frankly, I don't care. Whoever we got, we were going to be stuck with, (laughs) okay, for four years. I don't know whether you're looking at 2017 with anticipation or or with trepidation, with excitement or fear about what might happen. But here's what I do know. The king is coming. The king is coming. And when he comes, it will be with a kingdom. Jesus is not running for king. He doesn't need our vote, but he is coming. And when he comes, he will overturn and overthrow every wicked 
government on the face of the earth. And by the way, they're all wicked. Every single one that has ever been ruled by any human being has always been wicked. It's only degrees of wickedness. And he overturns and overthrows all governors and kings and presidents and premiers and commandantes and whatever else. He overthrows them all. And he replaces him, replaces them with his righteous rule as the branch that bears fruit from the stump of Jesse. And that will give us all hope for the new year to come. He is the one we have been waiting for. And I want to just read as we close some of the rest of God's word from Isaiah chapter 11 about the king and his kingdom when it comes. So just listen here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The king is coming, and this is what his kingdom will be like. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the king would come and bring this kingdom before next Christmas. But Father, whether he comes this next year or today or tomorrow or a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, Father, we pray that we would be faithful that you, by your Holy Spirit, would remind us of the truths of God's Word, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation, and that having kept your Word in a multiplicity of ways in the past, that you have not changed, and you therefore will keep your Word faithful and true to the end of all the ages until the kingdom is established. And Father, we put our hope in You. We put our trust in You. We know that there is no ruler, no political party, no, no man or woman or, or idea that is going to transform the world in the way that Christ will. 
And so we put our hope in you. We look forward to the day when the King comes. And Father, we pray that you might help us to follow him until he reigns on the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.